Good morning. I'm Anna Kukulbert. It's Wednesday, May 11th, going to Mexico for abortion access. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. An ex-caregiver and convicted sex offender pleaded guilty yesterday to sexually assaulting two women in San Diego area nursing homes. A jury convicted Matthew Flukiger in March of sexually assaulting a woman at La Mesa's Parkway Hills nursing home in January of 2020. But the jury hung on counts involving two other women. Prosecutors planned to retry Flukiger on the deadlocked counts next month before he made the plea deal. The agreement means Flukiger faces 25 years to life in prison. The state is giving two blocks of downtown San Diego to a developer to turn into affordable housing, market rate units, office space, and retail. The state awarded the excess property to the Michaels organization as part of an executive order from Governor Gavin Newsom to spur housing development. The property is near State and Ash Streets in downtown. The state, the city, and the developer will spend the next few months working on a project concept. Yelp.com has named San Diego's home brewing company the top brewery in the state of California. Home brewing company is both a brewery and a homebrew supply shop in North Park off of El Cajon Boulevard. Yelp's designation for the brewery comes just before American Craft Beer Week starts on Monday. Home brewing company began in 2012, and it was the first shop to receive homebrew shop of the year from the American Homebrewers Association in 2018. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another hasn't. This is Port of Entry. The Park Redison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcasts and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. Baja California's first legal abortion clinics opened in March. Providers hope this is the start of safe and legal access to abortions on the Mexican side of the border. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis says the clinics are already attracting patients from the United States, and they'll likely attract more with Roe versus Wade hanging in the balance. Tijuana is an established medical tourism destination. Americans can get root canals, plastic surgery, even liposuction at a fraction of the prices they pay back home. Now that abortion is legal in Baja California, a medical company called Profem is trying to add abortion to the list, even as reproductive rights face an existential threat in the U.S. with the Supreme Court poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. Luisa Garcia is the director of Profem. She says Tijuana has the potential to become the go-to destination for Americans seeking legal, convenient, 
and low-cost abortions in Mexico. Yo creo que Tijuana próximamente se puede hacer como que la capital o algo de la interrupción para todas las personas que quiera que quieran venir de otros estados o que lo quieran manejar más discretamente. In October 2021, Baja California legalized abortions up to 12 weeks of pregnancy and longer in cases of rapes or when a woman's life is in danger. Profem has operated a legal abortion clinic in Mexico City for 15 years. They opened a new Tijuana clinic March 17th. The procedure starts at $200 and there's no waiting period. Garcia says they're already serving patients from border cities in California and Arizona. However, there are several challenges to expanding abortion access in Baja California. Garcia says lack of education is still one of the top issues. Patients often ask if they're breaking the law by having an abortion or if the procedure will prevent them from being able to get pregnant in the future. Another obstacle has been finding a landlord in Tijuana willing to rent to them. Garcia says Profem was denied a lease because the landlord didn't want to be associated with abortion providers. Empezamos a ver primero en un lugar y al momento de yo estar solicitando información para hacer la, la apertura, este, en una torre médica me dicen no, porque es para interrupción. Dr. Arturo Posada works at the new Tijuana Clinic. He asked me not to take photos of the building or even the waiting room. He doesn't want anyone to harass patients who come in for treatment the way some pro-life groups do in the U.S. The clinic in Tijuana is in an office building with dozens of other medical tenants. There are several buildings in Tijuana like this. Many cater to the already established medical tourism industry. Posada believes women have the freedom and right to decide what to do with their pregnancies. But he recognizes that throughout history, they've been largely denied those rights, not just in Mexico, but all over the world. Posada says the two clinics in Tijuana and Mexicali have served about 100 patients since opening. The vast majority are from Mexico. But Posada's noticed a steady increase in women from the U.S. crossing the border to seek his services. He says the numbers are small, but growing each month. The first month it was only one, then three. In April there were five, even one woman from as far away as Texas. And all of this is through word of mouth. The clinic doesn't advertise in the U.S. Arizona and Texas are two border states where abortion will likely be banned if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe v. Wade. Posada suspects if that happens, his numbers will keep going up. Gustavo Solís, KPBS News. San Diego County officials are reaching out to city leaders countywide to help create more homeless shelters across the region. County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher says cities will be asked to provide the shelter space and the county will offer on-site mental health services and public benefits assistance. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman has more. On May 24th, the Board of Supervisors is voting on a measure that, if passed, would allocate $10 million in startup money. It's designed to help cities launch their own shelter programs. Tamara Kohler leads the Regional Task Force on Homelessness. She says in any given city, up to 90% of the unsheltered are from that area. And they want to stay close to home. So this is why it's so important to cite these in 
each of our smaller communities because that's where they, they last were housed. It's where we have our greatest chance to house them again. The proposal from the county still requires investments from individual cities. They would need to run or contract out day-to-day -day shelter operations. That includes intake services and providing food, security, and showers. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. Veteran unemployment remains low coming out of the pandemic, but KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh says vets are still facing challenges in the job market. The unemployment rate among veterans ticked up slightly in April to 3% according to the U.S. Department of Labor, but that's still part of an overall decline in recent months. Lindsay Livingston with Veterans Village says some vets are left behind. Even though the numbers may look you know, one way we're still seeing veterans come to us with a lot of these same struggles. Livingston says finding work in that first year after a person leaves the military is particularly difficult. Because a lot of time our veterans do struggle in that area, um, especially if they went into the service straight out of high school, they may not have actually ever done a job interview. Some question the veteran unemployment figures. The group Call of Duty recently issued a report saying the numbers don't show, among other things, how many veterans remain underemployed. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. San Diego researchers have discovered large pools of ancient water under the ice in Antarctica. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has more. This is the first time that scientists have confirmed the presence of groundwater under the massive ice sheet that covers Antarctica. Scripps Institution of Oceanography postdoctoral student Chloe Gustafson traveled to the continent with a small team from San Diego and Columbia University. She says they spent weeks using special instruments to measure the electric and magnetic fields within the ice that can be hundreds of meters thick. Geophysics at its heart is really similar to medical imaging. It's like taking an MRI of the Earth just on a larger scale. Gustafsson says the presence of water, some of it in huge reservoirs, could speed up the movement of the ice above it. That would accelerate the continent's ice shedding by speeding up the natural ice flows. And that could raise sea levels. The findings are published in the journal Science. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Coming up, voters are likely the least familiar with judicial candidates. We'll have a resource that can help you make an informed choice. That's next, just after the break. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. <laughs> it's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, 
You're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. U.S. Senator Alex Padilla will appear on California's June primary ballot twice in separate but related contests. CAP Radio's Chris Nichols explains why. Padilla is running in one contest to finish former U.S. Senator Kamala Harris's term, which ends in January. But he's also competing for a new six-year term, which would start right after. Padilla was appointed early last year by Governor Gavin Newsom to fill Harris's seat when she was sworn in as vice president. But the appointment could have faced legal opposition, according to Wesley Hussey, a political science professor at Sacramento State. Courts have said, you know, if you're going to have an election, you can't just have a person occupy the seat forever. There has to be a chance for voters to approve or not approve them. To avoid that, Newsom signed a law that requires voters to decide whether an appointed U.S. senator should serve out the remainder of a term. Kim Alexander of the California Voter Foundation says Padilla's double billing could cause confusion. I think everybody involved in voter education is going to have to make an extra effort to make sure that voters understand that this is happening and that this isn't a mistake. The top two vote getters in each Senate contest will move forward to the general election, meaning voters will be asked to decide on these races again in November. In Sacramento, I'm Chris Nichols. Of all the candidates running for office, voters often know the least about judicial candidates. That's where the San Diego County Bar Association steps in. David Myshock is president of the association. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. Here's that interview. As I said, voters are often left floundering when it comes to picking judges. Why don't we get more information about judicial candidates? Very little information is publicly available to voters to help them make an informed decision about who to elect to the bench. And that's probably simply because a lot of what they do is outside of public perception. And it's not so simple to evaluate a particular person and their abilities to be on the bench through a simple overview or something short of a more comprehensive analysis similar to what the County Bar Association does. And why does the Bar Association take it upon itself to evaluate the people who are running for judgeships? Why is that important? The San Diego County Bar Association conducts these evaluations as part of its commitment to serving not only the legal community, but the general public. While there are a number of organizations which publish information on candidates for various offices, what aren't normally covered are these for judicial elections. So we offer a way for the public to have some information. So as you said earlier, they're not making decisions based upon matters that aren't necessarily going to reflect who would best serve in these positions, which are going to be critical to us. Judges have the ability to make decisions that impact people before them in very personal ways and in very important ways. And so we want to make sure that the public has as much information about these people who may be impacting their daily lives. And how does this evaluation process work? I mean, what exactly is the committee evaluating? So since 1978, the Senior County Bar Association has followed a comprehensive and confidential process to evaluate candidates based on 15 distinct criteria. 
These include things like bias and tolerance, caseload management, compassion and understanding, courtesy and patience, decisiveness, fairness and objectivity, just by way of example of some of these characteristics. And the committee meets to maintain integrity in the impartial assessment of any candidate. Then the committee does its research. Uh, It delves into the backgrounds of the candidates, both based on what they may offer themselves and through outreach to the legal community to get feedback on each of these candidates before arriving at an assessment regarding their qualifications to serve on the bench. And that assessment comes down to about five categories. Tell us what those five categories are. It's really four categories, then a fifth one that says we're unable to evaluate. But the four categories that you might get are exceptionally qualified, well-qualified, qualified, and lacking qualifications. I will offer that to be even qualified to serve on the bench is significant because of all of those characteristics that we look at along the way and would expect in a member of our judiciary. But there are distinctions between the qualifications. The exceptionally qualified are those that are possessing exceptional professional ability, experience, competence, integrity, and or temperament to perform the judicial functions. The well-qualified have a very high level of those characteristics, and the qualified meet those standards that we are looking for in our judges. The evaluations that the bar releases are not endorsements, but I'm wondering why not endorse the person that you determine to be exceptionally qualified or to be the best candidate? By design, we don't want it to take the decision really out of voters' hands. We provide these evaluations along the way so that they can assess who it is that the professionals in the community believe would be fit to serve on the bench. In terms of where a particular candidate may fall in relation to to other ones, it's a real tough call for us to tell the public, you should pick this one person rather than another. And that's why we construct these evaluations where we evaluate the candidates independently of one another. It's not meant to be a comparison. The County Bar Association has evaluated the seven judicial candidates on the June primary. Where can voters find that information? Well, if you're looking for it directly from the San Diego County Bar Association, you can go to our webpage at sdcba.org. And that was David Myshock, president of the San Diego County Bar Association. He was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. Protests and some celebrations erupted across the Philippines on Monday after early counting showed presidential candidate Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is likely bound for the presidency. KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim spoke with members of the San Diego Filipino diaspora about what this election means to them. Filipino Americans and immigrants in San Diego, home to the fifth largest Filipino community in the nation, have been watching the Filipino presidential election closely. Our struggles aren't divorce. What's happening in the Philippines is directly um, connected to us here in the U.S. That's Angela Subito. She grew up in National City and is part of Anak Bayan, a Filipino volunteer youth organization in San Diego. She says she's afraid that the apparent election of the son and namesake of former dictator Ferdinand Marcos will usher in yet another era of martial law and impunity. 
it's very disappointing to see um, the return of the Marcuses into power. They aren't qualified to be politicians in general, given their history of corruption. Still, some Filipino-Americans in San Diego, like Ditas Yamani, also of National City, say that people should hold out hope that Marcos will be different than his father. He's his own individual. He's got his own perspective. He's got his own visions and goals. The election has divided people in the U.S. as much as in the Philippines, with protests taking place against Marcos in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York. Christina Kim, KPBS News. Artist and former San Diego resident Dave Stevens is probably best known for creating The Rocketeer, a comic book that became a movie in 1991. But Stevens, who died in 2008, did much more than just The Rocketeer. A new exhibit at the Comic-Con Museum explores Stevens's life, legacy, and his personal collection. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with Dave's sister, Jennifer Stevens Bauckham, who manages the Rocketeer Trust that provided the materials for the exhibit. Jennifer, most people probably remember your brother Dave Stevens for creating The Rocketeer, but you're his sister, so what do you remember best about him? Well, I mean, aside from just watching him produce, you know, paintings and different artwork when I was little, you know, he did a lot of art when he was still living at home with us because there's 16 years of difference between our in age uh, between us. Besides just being enamored with his art, he was so much fun. He was just a really, really so funny, always teasing me. Yeah, I, I had a really good time with him as a big brother. Definitely. And what do you think of his personality came through in his art? Interestingly, when he created the Rocketeer comic book, he incorporated bulldogs into the comic book. And that was one of his absolute favorite things. He just was obsessed with bulldogs, English bulldogs. The funny, quirky part about that is in on one of the comic book pages, you know, the main character tries to feed him beef jerky, you know, alluding to what would happen after the dog ate beef jerky. Um, in one of the clips, you, you almost wouldn't notice it, but at the very bottom, uh, at the end of one of the chapters, the dog is lifting his leg on someone else's shoe. So, I mean, there's just a lot of, that is so Dave humor. It's absolutely his humor, just kind of childish. <laughs> he, he was the, the boy that never grew up, for sure. And Comic-Con now has an exhibit dedicated to him. And remind people of what Dave's connection was with Comic-Con, because he started going there just as a fan. Yeah, exactly. So we had moved to San Diego in 19, early 1972. I was maybe three months old um, and he was in high school still. And um, he I'm not sure how he found out about Comic-Con, if he knew about it uh, from living in Portland or how, but um, I believe 1972 was his first con and um, he started as a, a geeky fanboy, super excited to see all of his comic book artist heroes. And then he started bringing his own portfolio to uh, for these artists to review. And it went on from there. He was a volunteer for a while. Um, he started uh, designing all the bat, uh, not all, but he started designing some of the badges and some of the programs. Um, so he's had a, a long a long relationship with Comic-Con. And he really got to meet some mentors there who helped him with his career. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the big ones was Jim Steranko. He obviously started out being somewhat mentored by him, but then over the decades, they became very close friends. You know, they were the best of friends. So you help run the Rocketeer Trust Fund and you have partnered with the Comic-Con Museum to put together this exhibit. So what are some of the things that you have contributed that people can see there? Um, Almost 100% of it. I know they there's uh, I don't I loaned about 60 pieces of art, plus all the personal effects, all the movie props. I think there's a couple of things that may show up at a later date from other collectors uh, that will be on loan for the display. But uh, yeah, almost the entire thing is from me. And in terms of what kind of art you brought to the exhibit, I mean, what kind of went into the thought process of curating those pieces and what did you want represented of him in terms of the diversity of the art? My goal was to have the exhibit be biographical. So there are pieces that I loaned from when he was in elementary school, fifth or sixth grade of, you know, Spider-Man um, all the way through sometime in the 2000s. So towards the end of his career in life. So I wanted a very broad spectrum of, of art um, to show that Dave was not just known for the Rocketeer, but he had so much other you know, and, and very varied styles and everything else. Yeah, I wanted people to see the breadth of his career. And that was Beth Accomando speaking with Jennifer Stevens Bauckham. Comic-Con Museum is currently hosting the exhibit Dave Stevens and the Rocketeer, Art for Art's Sake. And that's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day.